Okay, welcome to the Ravelin uh, podcast. I'm sitting here with Stephen Withworth, who is our... What's your title, Stephen? Uh, I guess co-founder and product manager on the data engineering team. Excellent. I'd sum it up. Excellent, and which is very handy because today's topic is going to be about data engineering. Uh, and I don't think it's a very well understood um, discipline yet, I think in the broader world, uh, but it's been really critical to how we've done fraud detection since the very beginning. And as we sort of uncover the, uh, or peel back the layers, I guess, of our fraud detection, uh, I think this is one area that, that I think is worth people understanding a little bit better because I think it gives a big insight into how we do what we do. and. Uh, possibly for other data analysts, data engineers out there, it's it's a, a very useful sort of uh, insight into how data engineering might apply in other circumstances. But um, let me start at the very, very beginning, I guess. The simplest question is, is what is data engineering, Steve? And, and how does it relate to machine learning? Is it different? Is it part of it? I mean, how do they work together? Yeah, sure. So I'd say it's probably a supplementary function for machine learning, but also for other disciplines within the business. So I'd say it's broadly defined as sort of the transportation processing transformation of data um, and that in and of itself is kind of vaguely interesting but it's really what you do that uh, that is the the interesting part so the way I usually think of it is the plumbing mm -hmm. you know between things um, and then the things that come out of that plumbing are things like human analysis analytics reporting machine learning etc etc um, so I'd say broadly most software companies data companies so mm -hmm. they take data in they store it they transform it um, and then I would say that data engineering is a stream of software engineering that really focuses on ensuring that if we take our plumbing metaphor that the pipes are flowing well um, that the stuff that's going through them is what we expect it to be uh, and that we make sure that people and systems have the data that they need to be able to do their jobs well so as I touched on previously they're usually a supporting function for multiple other teams so a couple of examples of this uh, if you have, say, an analytics system like Google Analytics or SAP or some kind of reporting system, yeah. um, those are really data engineering products because what they're doing is taking these sort of raw events, enriching them, turning them into something useful, uh, you know, from a, a web page view into something in Google Analytics where you can say, this is how many people are returning visitors on my website from England, for example. Um, and then if we relate it to machine learning, I think the big misunderstanding people have about machine learning, when you apply it in a production setting, so like a business setting, uh, as opposed to research, is that it's almost entirely a data engineering job. You spend very little time actually building the algorithms uh, themselves to kind of classify things or predict things. It's mostly all the infrastructure around that that is very important. Um, so you need to ensure you have the right data at the right time, things are performing fast enough, um, you also have to get all this data for offline training and the machine learning part is actually a really small part of it. So I would say that if you're a good machine learning company, you sort of by definition have to be a data engineering focused company in order to do that well. All right, so the, for the fancy dance, do the um, architectural spouts and fountains, there has to be the good plumbing underneath to get the water there. Is that the yes, is yeah. that, that metaphor? To torture the metaphor. kicked out to death? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure we'll go even further with it. Um, but like, before we dig into sort of uh, fraud detection, I mean, where, where do you where is data engineering used now? I mean, what type of businesses are applying it to uh, um, applying these techniques, and what are they using it for? Yeah, so I'd say data engineering is a, a bit of a spectrum. So anyone that grabs some data, does some <coughs> transformation to it, and kind of puts it somewhere and you know aggregates it and does something different with it, is kind of doing data engineering. I would say that 
Um, there are varying businesses that do that as something sort of front and centre to revenue. So if you think about things like uh, high-frequency trading firms, mm -hmm. they need to make predictions based off of data that's happened in the past. Their ability to do that well and better than the market is really a function of how much insight can they grab from that data, how quickly can they react to it. Um, and this is very much sort of front and centre to, to being successful as a company. Um, you then have all the sort of West Coast uh, Silicon Valley firms like Google and Facebook, primarily making money from advertising. Ad tech is really, you know, essentially data engineering as a business. Yeah. You're tracking people, uh, building models to figure out which ads to serve to people, and then sort of getting that into a big loop uh, without much human intervention. Um, so I would say those are the sort of businesses uh, that skew more towards data engineering. Um, I think I think it's interesting to think about data engineering as a product. So I was touching on Google Analytics. I would say that that's an example of a product made available to the masses by using data engineering well. So if you think about it in its simplest form, you just go onto a web page. But yeah. what's happening there is that event is going. There's an event that's going to be fired when you go to that web page. That's going to get sent to Google. Then they're going to enrich that. They're going to look up your IP address, say, oh, this person's from London. Um, they'll also look at your cookies to say, is this a returning visitor or is it a new visitor? They then roll up these events into things called sessions, where they can track uh, multiple events by the same person in some kind of loosely defined session on the website, like, you know, time spent there. And then they aggregate all of those up into ways that you can slice and dice and report on. So. That's just data engineering. It's yep. just trans it's taking that stuff, transforming it, enriching it, and then allowing you to get a different view of that kind of view. You know, the raw events are not that useful when it comes down to it. But if you do the right things to them, then you have this really powerful sort of stuff that's abstracted away from from all of that. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to me that it seems to have um, maybe it's my bias, but it seems to have emerged recently as a sort of independent of other things discipline you know it's, someone is now the head of data engineering data engineering is a, a job you see listed it's a specific skill I mean has something changed I mean why is that now is it processing power is it is it just availability of data is, is something new that, that's sort of making this yet more important than it was previously yeah I think that's a great question um, I would say just as an aside data engineering still seems to me like something you very much learn on the job and it right. just sort of happenstance, you know, oh, we have this thing that we're collecting, I guess we need to put it somewhere useful. Then someone in a month comes and says, oh, I quite like that data, but could I have it in a different format? And as a result, it's just sort of one of those things that kind of evolves uh, as, as you're a software engineer. But um, to go back to your question, yeah, I would say there's a few reasons now why data engineering is uh, more pervasive than it used to be. So firstly, there's just a lot more data around. Um, there's some statistic, I can't remember it, which is saying, uh, that there's been more data created in the last n years than there has in all time before that, and I think yeah. n is like you know four or five years, something something really really close. There's also the uh, growth of mobile, so there's a lot more people on the internet than there used to be. Um, you know, billions of people now as opposed to, to tens or hundreds of millions. Um, but when when people are using um, mobile apps uh, and websites they generate a lot of data and I would say that there's been a push to instrument more things and by instrument I mean log events about how people are using these apps yeah. um, and storing that data has got a lot cheaper so for example scoring a gigabyte of data 
1981 would have cost you 500,000 US dollars and that now costs you three cents. Wow. So you can see that many, many, many orders of magnitude uh, decrease in the cost of doing this to the point of which it's now just more simple to say, let's just log everything um, and it might be useful later. I would say that things, um, you know, legislation like GDPR has made this uh, sort of rolling back a bit of this mindset, mm -hmm. but I, it certainly was the way for a few years. Um, there's also, you know, once you have all of this data, you actually need to do something with it. It's not, not very useful if you just store it somewhere. So there's these open source projects like Hadoop, uh, which came out of papers released by Google um, that allowed kind of companies that didn't have the technological um, teams to build this sort of stuff to be able to use uh, these big data processing systems to do stuff. Um, and then you had companies like Cloudera, you know, listed publicly that help all of these enterprises sort of make the move from these kind of expensive proprietary systems from Oracle to a more open source world where they can start picking and choosing and integrate, integrating bits into their system. Um, I would say that cloud made a big difference. So if you wanted to get a lot of data and do some processing with, uh, with that data, if you have your own data center, then you sort of have to provision you have to buy the number of machines that is sort of the maximum that you want to be able to process at any given time. And sure. then when you're not doing something with that, all of that is just underutilized capacity. And that completely uh, is kind of reversed with the cloud is that you can just rent things for minutes at a time. So if you want to do some large scale processing, you can just rent you know, a thousand servers for five minutes and do all of your processing and spin them back down. So you don't have the capital expenditure of having to buy all these servers and sort of have them have them useless. Um, and I would say lastly, machine learning has seen a real resurgence in the past 10 years or so. So we've seen uh, the, advert, the advent of deep learning, which is um, usually operates on things like, uh, you know, media formats, so images and videos and, uh, and sound, and those are kind of very large, they're a lot larger than text, I would say. So you have a lot of data coming out of that. Um, but like I said earlier, you sort of need good data engineering to do machine learning well. So that's, I think, what, you know, this combination of all of these different things has kind of really fueled a, a growth in data engineering to the point at which you now see sort of head of, you know, well, senior data engineer as opposed to senior engineer that just does a little does bit a bit of data. Of data on the side. Yeah. yeah. Okay, and taking it back to um, uh, fraud detection, um, mm -hmm. in a broader sense, I mean, how does data engineering assist in, in detecting fraud? Yeah, good question. So I would say that Ravelin is essentially a data engineering company at the very core. So if you think about the business that we are, we're sent data by our clients, mm -hmm. and what they're asking us to do is find a way to transform that raw data, so the, the cards that people have added and... Uh, the locations and the items and the orders and how much they've spent, we need to give them a recommendation from that data. So fundamentally it's sort of a transformation, processing, enrichment problem that we face. Um, I think the easiest way to detail how data engineering assists us in fraud detection is probably to walk through the life of a request to Ravelin and how that ends up in a recommendation. So okay. I'm going to go into some detail, um, just sort of prod me or, or or stop me if I'm going a bit too deep. So what happens is we receive data from a client in real time. So when someone is making a transaction, for example, they send us a bunch of data, so what they're buying, the cards that they're buying it on, etc. 
and then we give them a recommendation back, usually within 100 or 200 milliseconds. So this data comes through the front door. So the first thing we do is we enrich it. So let's take IP addresses. Um, these kind of represent the uh, the address that your computer has on the internet. Yeah. And this is just a string, so it'll be like 81.131, blah, blah, blah. Um, this doesn't really mean anything to a machine or a human. Uh, we need to do what's called enrichment, which kind of is loosely defined as getting additional context or information from a data point in order to make better decisions, essentially. So, for example, we can work out that this IP address is based in London and that they're using a mobile phone to connect uh, to this merchant. This sort of enrichment and transformation is very useful because we've gone from just a raw string that is meaningless to being able to say, is this user using a proxy or is this order being delivered to the states but is actually being made for an IP in China? Um, and that, for example, might suggest that a fraudster is ordering things for legitimate users in the states but actually using stolen credit cards to buy them. Right. From China, yeah. so so that's a, that's a point of which enrichment really helps, um, and we do this across the board. So there's sort of geocoding where we turn uh, 33 Bowling Green Lane into a series of lat long coordinates, which we can then machines understand a lot better. Mm -hmm. and we can then use to compare distances between uh, various places. So you know we've, we've got this data, we've enriched it, but we actually need to store it somewhere so we can refer it back to it later. Um, and there's various kind of uninteresting things that happen there, but some of the more interesting things are our graph, you know, things like our graph database, yeah. which is it's rather than connect. Right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. So that's dealing with uh, if you think about you know orders and customers and transactions, you can kind of relate to these things. Um, well, they're, they're inherently relational, as in a, and a customer has some orders and those orders may have transactions. So mm -hmm. if you think about it, you can kind of draw a link between those. Um, and that's really how relational databases think about it. You would, you know, grab all the orders from this customer ID. Um, but the way that that ends up failing is if you're interested in having links between customers and sort of keeping them quickly accessible in real time. Um, so that's what Connect does, which connects customers together based on shared usage of devices and credit cards and emails and phones. And this is interesting because fraudsters tend to reuse details um, under new customer accounts that they've used on other ones. So what you find is, is these sort of big fraud rings that are then created. Uh, and we can use the past behavior of previous fraudsters to say, okay, if there's fraud in this network, mm -hmm. don't allow uh, this transaction to go through. And this is the sort of thing that is really powered by good data engineering. You know, it's taking data, it's transforming it, it's storing it in the right way that means we can then retrieve it very, very quickly. Um, as opposed to if we were using a sort of relational system, uh, this would take a very, very long time, especially if you want to go for very large graphs. Um, so, so that really helps. Um, and then in terms of other storage, we also put things into what's called a data warehouse. So this is Imagine it like a big database that you can just put rows and rows of events into and then you can cheaply and efficiently do large-scale queries on them later. So you could say, find me all of the customers that have the name Stephen, for example. Yeah. Or for each day, count the number of orders that were made from this particular market. And this is, this is you know, useful in the abstract, but the sort of thing we use it for is 
we use it for figuring out how fraudulent particular attributes of a customer are. So how fraudulent is gmail.com versus yachtmail.com? Right. How fraudulent is this particular bin, uh, so the first six numbers of your credit card, uh, that identifies which bank uh, your card was issued from. For example, Turkish bins may be far more fraudulent to be used in London than you know bins from Lloyd's TSB because there's been big breaches at Turkish banks over the past over the past few years. So being able to take that sort of information and feed that back into our live system. So when we see a transaction that comes from a Turkish bin, we can go, oh, this potentially looks a bit more fraudy than if it were to come from uh, to come from Lloyd's. Mm-hmm. So so we've got this kind of insight that is <coughs> being pushed in within milliseconds and then being recalculated. So that's very sort of, uh, that is data engineering at its core. But that's not machine learning, right? No, 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 no. These are just... So it's interesting, you haven't actually mentioned machine learning yet as part of it. uh, Exactly. And I would would sort of, you know, like I said, it's it's kind of a service that you build on top of good data engineering. (laughs) So we do use these, you know, think of them as just numbers, you know. a number between zero and one that represents the rate of fraud. We do use these numbers in our machine learning system, but we can also use them in our fraud system, and we can also use them for uh, our investigative team to be able to say, "Oh, this looks like a strange, you know, this looks like a strange bin. I wonder how fraudulent it is." Yeah. And we actually use it on the dashboard as well. So when you go onto a customer profile, if the customer has an email from a very fraudulent email provider will flag that up to the person that's viewing it so they are able to kind of make use of that context as as they come in. Um, So I guess once we've stored the data and enriched it, you know, the real kind of job of actually giving a recommendation happens. So we break down our recommendations into three three simple recommendations, which is allow, review, or prevent um, this customer or this transaction. But that kind of belittles the many systems that are involved in the process of, of contributing to that. Mm-hmm. So I would say that there's a lot of stuff in there, but one system that's really reliant on data engineering is our rule system. So rules are very, very useful in fraud detection, I think. Um, I think we'll touch on that a little bit later. But one thing that they're very useful for is just kind of cutting off something at the source. So you see this new fraud tech and you want to be able to say, is this a, you know, is my judgment here being biased slightly? You know, am I seeing a lot of fraud, but I also, you know, lots and lots of good transactions that I don't see are also sharing this attribute. For example, um, orders from the USA and you're based in the UK. Um, What we want to do is allow people to use rules, but to use them sort of judiciously and with accuracy. Uh, And one of the things that data engineering allows us to do is to take a large sample of data that we've seen over the past week and then allow you to backtest your rules over that data so we can say if you apply this rule you're going to block 2% more transactions than you already are here's um, the profile of those customers that you're going to block Ravelin is already blocking you know X percentage of them by machine learning um, and then we can go and see sort of the customers example customers that would be blocked um, and that's a very good use of of data engineering because if you think about what would happen if that didn't exist is you might just sort of fat finger a decision and say instead yeah. of instead of saying <coughs> where payment method type is bitcoin you might say where it's not bitcoin um, and then yeah. accidentally block you know 99% of your entire traffic right so that's a uh, 
that's a very useful part of it. Um, we've also got all of the machine learning systems. So these are very data engineering heavy. Uh, you need to sort of get all the data together and train your model based off of it. So yeah. if you imagine that's kind of amalgamating everything that you've received so far and running these algorithms on top of it. Um, and that's that's a very uh, very intensive process which you need kind of good data engineering to make sure that the data that you're running on top is also correct and sort of what you expect it to be. Um, going on from having given that recommendation, I think that it doesn't really stop there. We have a lot of other products that are a bit more like Google Analytics in terms of data engineering as a product. So analytics um, is a good example of that. So we have our own internal analytics product, well internal, but you know, given to merchants product that allows you to slice and dice the data that you're sending into us. So this is viewable as kind of charts, which you can filter and select and aggregate by different things. Um, and that allows you to really slice in and say, you know, what is my block rate in London for people paying with Visa cards, for example. Um, and that's a great example of being able to go from really raw data to being able to then measure things that you, you know, you really care about because if your block rate is too high for people operating in London, then the operational teams are probably going to get annoyed at you if you start blocking too many of their transactions, right? So that is a great example of, of data engineering as a product. Um, so I would say, to sum up, for use in fraud, um, data engineering is absolutely crucial. It's kind of the, the bread and butter of what you're able to do, you know, if, if your job is giving recommendations on on data that you receive, you kind of, by virtue, have to be a data engineering company. Okay. Um, isn't there, I mean, one of the challenges I would have for any system like this is, um, isn't it as good as the data that it receives? So is there, there's, there is sort mm -hmm. of a self-referential, I think that's the right word for it, but there's a, a circular problem, I guess. Um, how do I know what isn't in the data that's been given to me? And is that stuff relevant? And, you know, so, I mean, would you recommend a data and machine learning only approach to solving fraud detection? Or is there other techniques and approaches that need to be there to, to sort of enhance it? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, the way that I often heard machine learning systems referred to as garbage in, garbage, in, garbage out. So right. you can only, you know, you can physically only do as well as the signal that you're trying to learn from. So think about if we want to build a system that spots cats and dogs. Um, ideally, we would have tens of thousands of images of cats and dogs and they would be labeled totally perfectly. Mm -hmm. um, but your system, if, if some of the cats are labeled as dogs and vice versa, then your system can only ever really be as good as the error, you know, the error that's actually in that data set itself. Um, and that's really, really present in fraud because if you think about a live fraud system, it's deliberately taking decisions to stop fraud. Yeah. But the counterpoint to that is when you build systems to then learn and react to the fraud that's coming in, you're missing a big chunk of the fraud that you already stopped with your previous system um, and you're only seeing the fraud that your system didn't catch. And, okay. I, and I think that's a subtle yeah. point, is that you then only, you will learn to spot the hardest fraud, essentially the, the stuff that your system didn't catch, and as a result your system kind of biases over time to missing out the easy fraud, i.e. the stuff that your system is already catching. Um, and that's just one of the weaknesses that I think a machine learning only approach 
suffers from. I mean, there's there's ways that you can combat that, but it, it's a serious problem. Um, I would say that an entirely automated solution to fraud detection will probably fail over the long run. And I think that the reason is the reason is this: we you know we talked about kind of labels and that is really what's called in the business a supervised learning problem you have right. examples of fraud and you have examples of things that are not fraud and you kind of teach the model to say or you, you train a model to say things that look like fraudulent things please label them as fraudulent you know it's it's a it's a basic premise but there's a kind of inherent disadvantage in that approach is that if you're in a situation where someone is trying to evade your system like a fraud detection system or an you know abuse on a social network your system needs to be able to react quickly to different or new types of fraud and supervised machine learning systems need to get these new labels in to learn the new patterns and thus you actually need to suffer new fraud to get the system to learn what that new fraud looks like yeah um, and that means lost money right so I think rules are a great counterbalance to this because if, like mentioned earlier, you use rules judiciously, you can put a stop to something quite quickly, but then you don't need to, you know, you don't need to have suffered that thing, uh, that problem, in order to kind of learn, to stop it in the future. So I think that's where rules, uh, rules comes very useful. You know, and I was a machine learning kind of, I was, a, rule, I was a rules convert. I would okay. say. Uh, so I started off very heavily pushing the machine learning approach in Ravelin and then over time thought that rules are just the most incredibly useful way to shape behavior. Um, and that doesn't necessarily mean blocking and not blocking. It's the more subtle things like pushing things to 3DS where you're not sure. And, by, mm. and mostly with having rules, you're kind of not really entirely sure about what you want to do with them. There's the sort of rules that are enforcing the bounds of acceptable behavior so we do not allow people to spend more than n thousand pounds on our platform without human review right that's yeah that's what i would call business policy but then you have rules that are sort of patching over some of these problems in machine learning systems that where they don't react quickly and that's where i think they're absolutely fantastic um that isn't to say that rules are the only approaches um so you can have anomaly detection, which is where you block things that just look strange or very different to everything else. Um, but we find that humans are also really great at spotting these patterns, spotting the weird things, but the more crucial part is quantifying them and acting upon them. Um, and that's not really what, you know, anomaly detection approaches are limited. They can probably spot things, but in reality that can't bring them together as part of a wider analysis. Yeah. Um, that's why I employ investigative analysts, and then we sort of give each client that we have an analyst. Um, and this really helps with proactivity. So if you think of machine learning systems as being reactive, they look at things in the past, we want people to be looking at things in the future. So, you know, what, what breach credential dumps are there out on the internet? What is this new spike of uh, weird-looking transactions originating from this particular country for a client? Um, we really want them to be on the lookout. Uh, and more broadly, I would say that you know there's three real sources of competitive advantage for Ravelin. So, having touched on uh, the investigative analysts, it's really our staff. So we have people that are searching for issues. This prevents fraud for the client, but also kind of keeps us honest because we need to make sure that our data engineering is as good as possible for them to be able to do their job. If mm -hmm. they don't have the right data, then they can't find the things that they need to find. Um, and I would say that really data 
is also a competitive advantage. So if you think about all of the data that we have over the past years of, our, of operating, we've now seen billions of transactions going through our platform. And thus we have a really great idea of what fraud looks like all over the world. Mm -hmm. If you're a merchant that's launching in a new country, in a new continent, you don't really have a great idea uh, of what fraud's gonna look like. You know, fraud rates, just the base level of sort of attack differs from country to country. Um, you know, so Germany sees a very low rate of fraud, South America sees a much higher rate of fraud. Um, and knowing that sort of thing uh, really, really helps. But I would say our ability to use that data and our knowledge that we've gained so far and use them for new clients is really a competitive advantage for us. And then I would say the last one is the technology. So we've got all of this data, but we need to put it to good use. And I think that we've built innovative uh, solutions to be able to do things like that, so connect where we can actually connect people together based off of shared usage, but we also have a you know fantastic machine learning system, rule system, and they the key part is that they all work together. So it's not purely just these things working in isolation, but we have, you know, everything contributes to the end score that we give. And then we have this kind of virtuous cycle where analysts then look at the, those recommendations figure out where we were wrong, give us more labels, and then we get a better idea of what fraud looks like, and sort of, there's like a self-improving yeah. loop. Um, and I guess you really need to have those three things to have a successful machine learning system, well, sorry, not machine learning, but successful fraud detection system over the long run. I would say machine learning will probably work at the start, but it's just gonna be quickly evaded as you you find what you, you know, you spot what you're trained to spot in the past, but people will just evade that. And now you're kind of stuck where you kind of need to rely on this, you know, this big hole in the wall that's got water leaking through it. You need to kind of patch it up with some rules to say, okay, just let's stop this happening. And over time, you'll probably build a, a system that looks more and more like the one that we've built. Great. Uh, Stephen, thank you very much. That's a really comprehensive look at data and ML and how we're not an ML company, we're a data company. Uh, I think I've learned a few things, so uh, hopefully listeners have too. Thanks yeah, a million. My pleasure. Thank you.